I am taking Sean's place. This isn't Sean's voice. Many of you are thinking Sean is doing some work around the southwest of England, the beautiful southwest in the in the summer. He's been doing all sorts of filming and things. You are left with me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, most of you do know because I've been doing this now for six months or so, but particularly I never sort of properly introduced myself to those audio listeners because this does go out on audio on the Sean Atwood True Crime Podcast. My name's Andrew Gold. I'm a former BBC and HBO journalist, made video documentaries and things, and looking into exorcism and UFOs and uh, mad culture war stuff. I now have a podcast called On the Edge with Andrew Gold, some of this stuff goes out there. Many people who are fans of Sean's come over to mine and vice versa. And we have a lot of fun. So if you're on the audio podcast after this, do come check out mine. Uh, but yes, the point is today we're going to have our two-hour session. It's not going to be four hours. We won't have the Patreon part because Sean's away. Apologies for that. But it's one hell of a show that producer Ash has put together. So there's four guests in total tonight, exclusively on YouTube for those listening, unless you are listening on the audio podcast, of course. We will be covering Skinwalker Ranch in quite some depth, actually, um, in from many different angles and places, because we've got two people talking about that today. Um, why is Sean absent just so you know sean who's become a dear friend of mine and sends me half naked photos of him from the beach which i very much enjoy um he's been filming some fun content with danny g in new key and it will be put into a documentary which Sean will discuss in detail later down the line. So that's quite exciting and all coming up. Uh, the good news is that Sean will be back next week, um, as will I, but it's going to be on a Tuesday next week. This is, again, this is all for the YouTube people who watch live. It'll be Tuesday 19th instead of the Wednesday. It's usually Wednesday evenings. So just to give you a quick rundown of tonight's amazing lineup that Ash has put together. Also, hello, everyone. Let me know if you've got any quick questions that I can answer in the next three minutes. Tell me how you're doing, where you're calling in from, uh, or just say stuff, right? You exist. You've got to say some stuff. Let the world know you exist. Let Sean Atwood's YouTube channel know that you exist. Right. From 7.30, which is in three minutes, we're opening the show with the wonderful, successful YouTuber, Carl the Crusher, who has more than three million subscribers, and he explores the mysteries of the unexplained. So we're looking to Bigfoot, UFOs, ancient aliens, and Skinwalker Ranch. Then it will be at eight o'clock, Dr. Michael Sala, who will be talking about secret space programs and Elon Musk. We like a bit of Musk chat on here. I certainly do. Um, it's funny, just a few years ago, it was like no one, it was a weird name that no one sort of knew, and then he quickly became the richest person in the world that everybody now knows about. It's just a funny name, Elon Musk. When you first hear that, it sounds like an aftershave. At 8.30, our next lot of YouTubers joining us tonight are Tom and Cherry. Sherry. I don't know whether to, I keep wanting to say it like Tom and Jerry. They're great um, in, from the Enjoy Your Enjoy the Journey Life YouTube channel. They go around in an RV. It's a sort of travel um, YouTube channel. And they did a fantastic documentary, which I watched the other night, also on Skinwalker Ranch. It's called Skinwalker Ranch. What is the secret? So that's really interesting. We talk about, we will talk about UAPs, which are which is the new term for UFOs, um, unidentified aerial phenomena. Then at about nine o'clock tonight, it'll be licensed therapist Katie Morton, our last guest, who will be talking about PTSD, trauma, and all sorts of things. Her channel has over a million subscribers as well. So some big names on tonight, um, and I'm looking forward to talking to her as well. And, well, we might as well go 30 seconds early or so. We've got Carl Crusher. How are you doing, Carl? Hey, what's up? 
It's good to good to hear and see you. Where are you t- uh, talking to us from? I'm in uh, southern Utah, actually, down here on the border of Arizona and Nevada, kind of uh, right down mm. uh, two hours from Area 51 and two hours from the Grand Canyon, kind of right in the middle of a lot of cool stuff. Man, that's cool. That that feels really exotic to me because I'm just used to growing up in all these cities in in the cold UK and sort of Utah's very exotic place. Um, but more interestingly, your work revolves around finding and exploring ancient petroglyph sites. Is that is that due to where you are? Are there those? Well, firstly, what are petroglyph sites? And then secondly, are there, are there, is is that sort of around where you are? Yeah, so petroglyphs are like when you see a lot of the carvings on the TV show, the ancient aliens, where they depict like the ancient uh, carvings that have humanoid like figures that almost seem anthropomorphic and maybe alien or from another culture or out of place. Um, A lot of people get confused about the difference between petroglyphs, pictographs and hieroglyphs, where hieroglyphs are what you typically see over in Egypt. And it's like a Uh, a form of language with written symbols and it's uh, put into a form that you can actually read and and write and has specific meaning. Whereas petroglyphs are like carved into rocks and they're more just like glyphs or symbols that have uh, almost like a graffiti tag, but they're more, much more sophisticated and connected over a vast network of, uh, of uh, village, community, and, and tribe, uh, depending on the culture. So, and uh, pictographs are the same thing, but they're painted on with like a dye or some some sort of a paint, the, a pigment that they'll put on the rock instead of actually carving it in. So I study all of those and try to go find them. And I kind of happened onto it because I, I realized I, w- I wanted to get out in my area and hike and explore a lot more. And I was watching online and saw, uh, yeah, that all these uh, carvings, petroglyphs and pictographs and everything were surrounding me all over the place for miles and miles. And so I just got into it. And when I started going and exploring these spots, I realized that what they put on the brochure and what they put online versus what you find when you go and start looking around is much different. And what I was rarely finding was uh, depictions of normal everyday life. Most of these petroglyph sites were full of really mysterious carvings that seemed to tell a story or have Hmm. clues that pointed to something. And that got me really hooked in the mystery. And so I started going and meditating in these places and trying to connect with them like spiritually and also taking like paranormal and scientific gear and trying to see if ancient shaman were connecting with these locations as well in some way or if there was something to that. And one thing led to another, and now I'm kind of doing uh, collaborative work research throughout the state and even with Skinwalker Ranch because of all of it. That's cool. So these um, petroglyphs, so they're pretty remarkable even if you don't take into account any paranormal ramifications. Because, I mean, how far back are we talking about? Well, I mean, some of them it's really hard to tell. I've seen some that actually depict carvings of figures that are throwing spears at woolly mammoths. So they could be very old paleo they could be 15 to 18,000 years old uh, it's really hard to tell um some a lot of the ones that i research and study around are more like in the range of a thousand uh to 1300 years ago and uh so it just depends there's layers and layers of culture and then you have invading cultures that come into the region like uh different 
people like the Aztec or the Spanish came in and they had different motives and intentions in the region, why they came in there. And they also carved on. And then you even also have, you know, Wild West carvings from pioneers and cowboys and stuff coming in that uh, also found the same spots and carved on these locations a lot as well. So you have to kind of sift through the different layers of culture and the people who uh, came into the area and what they were doing there and try to figure it all out. Here's the big question that people, I think, want to hear the answer to. I mean, what what does this mean for us? Is that do they suggest there there was back in the day some sort of alien paranormal life, or just that these people had imaginations like we have? Yeah, that's kind of the puzzle, the big mystery, and I think we're still kind of doing it at a different level today in the same kind of way, where on the the one hand, back in ancient times, you have people that were just approaching mother nature in its raw form. And maybe they were using substances or different types of spiritual ceremonies or rituals that were connecting them to reality. And what we would, the terms that we would use today and like what they use at the Stanford Research Institute is like altered states of consciousness. And now, you know, we have all these programs in the government and we did where they use like remote viewing and out-of-body travel and meditation approaches and methods to try and research reality and understand reality. They used it in the Cold War a lot to spy on the Russians and different things, but uh, all of that bleeds into the phenomenon, the strangeness of it as well, is like this aspect of human consciousness. And so my big question was, were these ancient people in these locations and their shaman in their rituals, were they somehow tapping into something in the geology or like the ley lines or the energetic frequencies of these certain canyons or, or locations? Cause they, a lot of them vibrate or have a lot of echo echoes to them, uh, uh, sound and frequencies to them. So were they using these natural locations to, have these sort of out-of-body experiences or do remote viewing or amplify their own human potential and consciousness or maybe even tap into other dimensions or entities or beings. And we see the same kind of thing coming full circle where you see experiments with like Stephen Greer's CE5 and you have the uh, Monroe Institute doing the gateway experience where a lot of this has to do with trying to contact the phenomenon or other dimensions of reality or peer into them using human awareness and consciousness rather than just uh, scientific equipment. So it's kind of like combining all of it together. So the question is, were ancient people doing that? And did they make contact or open up something? Or did they exist in a different time where things were amplified? And now we're, we've lost that and we're trying to rediscover it again. Oh, it's a fascinating thought, isn't it? And and among the other things that I know you look have been looking into, um, we, we've had like, oh, have I lost you? I lost you for a sec. Oh, we're, you're back. It might have been me that got lost. We've had, um, I don't know, we've spoken about different paranormal types of things before. And we're going to get on to Skinwalker Ranch, of course. But myths of giants um just because i've done I've sort of done bigfoot and ufos i'm interested in giants because giants you would think would see them so what's the what's the deal with giants yeah that's a really interesting one i'm trying to stay open-minded to all of it because it seems kind of inseparable to all of it when you go to these locations or delve into the research depending on what culture you're talking about they kind of do the carvings or the pictographs or whatever, and they relate the oral tradition as like 
uh, ant people, and sometimes they call them star people, or they call them the sky gods, or different things. There's different names, but it's common thread through all of it, and you kind of wonder if it is all connected. And some of it uh, is same with the phenomena of the giants, this mythos that there was a time and a place where there was these giant beings with sort of supernatural abilities that lived alongside of humans. And then there was kind of a, a disaster that wiped most of them out and a lot of people too. And then there was like some scraps between different pockets of them. And then the, the residue remains. So uh, the oral tradition is, is that a lot of them dwelt around in this area. There's a place in Nevada called Lovelock Cave where supposedly some giants were hunted down by Native Americans and trapped in a cave and burned in there. And then over in Fredonia, uh, just east of me towards the Grand Canyon over there by Kanab, there's stories of the early settlers in the early 1900s encountering living giants up in the canyons near the Grand Canyon and stuff when they were prospecting for mining spots and had encounters with them. So I don't know, you don't know how much of it's true or not. But uh, part of it's really interesting when you go up and start looking around and you see some of these ancient mine structures and cave systems. And that's what a lot what we've been doing up in the Uinta Basin around Skinwalker Ranch is going to a lot of these spots where these ancient caves and mines and things actually are that date back thousands and thousands of years into kind of this mysterious lost time. And there's petroglyphs and pictographs all over the place that point to it. And so we're kind of going into those places and looking and seeing how it's all connected and what's true and what's not trying to figure it out. Wow. It is fascinating. I suppose, I mean, do you ever, do you give much weight to the, to the idea that maybe over the millennia or centuries, these are stories about, I don't know, maybe even, because there was a time, wasn't there, when there were Neanderthals, uh living at the same time as us and i think there were several other types of sapiens which just in itself is just mind-blowing and maybe some of those stories have come back you know to, to today to today and now it's all giants and stuff like that because what you were saying sounded pretty similar to to that scientific concept right yeah when you think about it even like the like the zuni people or the the pueblo like i've talked to local native americans and they're like yeah my my great grandma she was only like four foot three or something and so you wonder like if another culture came over like the phoenicians or the vikings mm -hmm. or something and the and the waterways were different or water levels were higher and they were able to come right up the grand canyon up into lake powell or clear up into the Uinta Basin and where now they're just dry salt flats that could have been like ocean fjords and they were paddling up in there and having all kinds of interactions. So what they recount as giants could have just been another culture that was vastly different that they ran into. Who knows? But I, what's interesting is the, the again, the, the carvings and the, and the stories, they don't seem to relate normal interaction they seem to account supernatural depictions there's even you know entities with big horns and clawed hands and then spiral portals and there's even spirals that i've seen with people and even animals falling out of the spirals upside down like they're dropped from the sky and weird stuff and again they don't put that on the brochure or the website they just put like a picture of an antelope or something <laughs> Until you go up there and look yourself, you would never see it, you know. It's interesting. We've got a, 
a good, nice comment from Short Order Cook saying, what an interesting thing to spend your life exploring. Wonderful. I think so as well. It sounds like a fantastic job to have to be looking into all of this stuff and, and expanding the human mind and whatever. Um, <laughs> but but what about, what about I mean, is your work all based on on the historic stuff and petroglyphs? And, or, or do you give much, do you, do you believe much in the stuff, you know, nowadays stuff reportings and things i mean i know bigfoot sightings is one of the things you've been looking into for example yeah part of what got me into it was i like several years ago like eight years ago i got invited as a full-time youtuber and independent filmmaker to go help film behind the scenes for a documentary about bigfoot there was a guy in california that claimed that he shot one up in the mountains and i got asked to go help film uh some of the footage for that and the first night up there had like a really bizarre encounter at night when everybody was asleep. Uh, and I was up by the campfire with one other guy. And at the time I related it like, man, it was like straight up a Bigfoot encounter. There we were up on the mountain, you know, but really it was very supernatural, like a big shadow figure, almost like you would like you hear my friend, Chris Bartell. He was a, a security guy at Skinwalker Ranch for uh, many years during the Bigelow era. And it sounds like, you know, some of his stories and other ones that I've heard more than an actual like Bigfoot encounter. So I don't know if I just like overlaid it in my mind and made it a Bigfoot encounter the way it all happened, because I didn't really yeah. see like a giant ape in the woods, you know, but I did yeah. see a giant shadow thing move up at me through the trees that was very big and tall and scary. And then saw like a, a ball of light that came up out of the trees and floated overhead and disappeared and and that kind of unraveled my whole sense of reality i was trying to figure out what the hell that was for the longest time uh it was so strange and bizarre and then finally when i got to a place where i was like you know i think i could just pursue this full time and really try to figure it out i wanted to understand my own my own self my own sense of awareness and perception and the blind spots with that so i really got into different aspects of meditation and human awareness and consciousness because you know this aspect of the the trickster element or your own awareness being fooled or something like that i wanted to know be very grounded in my own perceptions and everything going into it so from that aspect and then also you know getting the right equipment and surrounding myself with the right friends and team and then uh, i just started getting into it so yeah it's turned into a really good really good career i say that but sometimes it's not so fun when you're <laughs> sitting in a spot by yourself in the dark or whatever and things start happening you're like okay yeah. maybe i got more than i bargained for but yeah so it's far so exciting. good it is yeah yeah so <laughs> So that's, I mean, it, it does sound like you're healthily skeptical, I would I would say, because you, you say, oh, you know, it could be down to uh, some sort of perception or whatever. And you've become you've become more uh, you're trying to become more attuned with, I guess, what might be real and what and what isn't. Uh, but but is there anything where you really are like, no, that was 100 percent? Hmm. No, I don't think I've been that convinced yet. I think I've, you know, I've. Oh, that's a very, very good question. <laughs> I think in the moment, I've definitely had things that according to my awareness and perception, they were uh, very vivid, uh, very like a, a real sort of experience and encounter. But you're, it's always left with a sense of confusion and second guessing 
and wondering if somebody was messing with you. And, and, and that's kind of what I think a lot of people struggle with after they have an encounter with the phenomenon, because it's, you're trying to understand something that, uh, it's hard to wrap your head around because it's different than you're expecting. You know, a lot of my, what I would call supernatural type experiences, I would say are tied to my uh, exploration of human consciousness through meditation. And then when I go to these locations and I practice that there in some of these locations, and I think that's what they call like the hitchhiker phenomenon. It's like something follows you home. It's almost like you're trespassing on something else's territory. And then it, hmm. so it comes to check you out back at home. And so I've definitely had stuff like that happen. But this is where it's strange because, you know, I go to the site, I have a, an experience at the site where there's like, maybe missing time, like three, four hours where I can't really, where I'm like, but I'm not sure, did I fall asleep? Was it just a deep meditation? But then I'm very sick. I'm like throwing up by the time I get back to the truck. And then the dreams that I have all night are very bizarre. The smoke alarms in my house start going off. I start having, you know, almost like there's a, like a poltergeist in my house or something, things moving around and seem out of place. But the whole time, like, how do I say that's 100% real? How do I say what level of that is, is just going to these places? Does it amplify our own human potential or our own human connection with our environment? And is it just making me come back home and I'm creating all these effects around myself? And I'm thinking that it's like an entity following me when it's not. So I'm very skeptical in that sense, you know. Um, I'm curious, very curious about what it is. So even when there is seems to be things that are happening that are real, I'm still very curious and skeptical about what is the source of it, what's causing it, and you know how real the phenomena is, and and all of that. So it's a big mystery, and very curious about it all. Hmm. I've apparently been getting some issues with my camera. Did you see any Carl on your side with my camera? I haven't seen any. Is mine look a little blurry and stuff? No, but apparently, no, no. Apparently, mine was. Apparently, mine went off and glitched on the actual YouTube channel. But I don't think it did in the studio, did it? So that's yeah. A thing. I don't know why that happened. Maybe aliens trying. Right to when we were talking about us. having electrical stuff follow home, right? <laughs> yeah, that's really weird. Honestly, I've just seen Ash. Ash sent me a little uh, screenshot of what it looked like, and it is all completely glitched up. Um, wow. And it does sound like there's some sort some, someone's trying to get me. I've shapeshifted, as Ash has just said to me. Um, we've got a comment. Let me know in the comments if that is happening again, and maybe I'll have to refresh at some point or something. Um, Anexus Amei asks about uh, can, Carl, can Carl describe what portals are in these mysterious places? And I wonder if that takes us on to Skinwalker Ranch, because I know there are supposed to be portals there. So maybe you could give us a, a little rundown, because we are going to be talking about Skinwalker Ranch later as well, which is why I wanted to ask you about your other expertise and experience. But a little rundown of what Skinwalker Ranch is, and, and then get on to the portals. Yeah. So portals, I think this is interesting. When people think of a portal, they immediately think of like Stargate, or they think of like, mm -hmm portal from a video game yeah rick and morty like a video game some window energetic window sort of opening up kind of what i the way that i like to to think about it and what i what seems to be occurring the way that i describe it more instead of thinking of it like a portal appearing within our reality imagine it more like 
accessing information from or, or awareness from what is normally in your blind spot. Does that make sense? So like mm. we normally can only perceive the colors of the rainbow and everything that we see in our visual spectrum falls within that reality, within the ultraviolet to the infrared. And then everything outside of that falls into a total blind spot and we just can't see it. You know, but there are other animals within the animal kingdom and insects and things that can perceive into the infrared and into those other spectrums and other dimensions of reality if you think about it different yeah. frequencies of awareness or existence and so imagine if you go into a certain location that has an anomaly either geologically or uh, something is there maybe underground or is is there's a ley line or an amplification or something like that that we don't understand or a person has a natural ability uh, and you like that is amplified themselves like they're able to change their radio signal and you go into these locations and and suddenly you become aware or you perceive or get a glimpse into what is normally in your blind spot so something that would be invisible to you normally or be, go typically unperceived by you suddenly there's a glitch and now you can see it or you can there's a, a wrinkle in reality that allows you to glimpse into this other space or our cousins next door, so to speak, in this other parallel dimension or spectrum of reality that we normally don't perceive. So when I think when people perceive what they're calling a portal, that comes with a lot of misunderstandings with the terminology where really it might just be more like um, a threshold where two places are or like an event horizon where two places are merging together and a window opens or maybe even your mind is opening to perceive something that really is there that normally you would not see just like it and so then the trick is is how do you pair that up with technology to also capture uh, alongside when you're perceiving it within your consciousness and awareness so that it's not just a, a hallucination perceived by the individual how do you capture that scientifically and that's a lot what's going on now is how do you match up the uh, psychological phenomenon or the psychic phenomenon as it occurs within the person's awareness and match that with scientific equipment that can capture the data on the right frequency and then you start to narrow in on what exactly this is and where it's coming from and where it exists Man, it's fascinating. And, let, and I'm going to ask you more about Skinwalker Ranch now, but Dr. Cranky Flaps, no, I don't wear eyeliner, but I did when I was about 18 because I thought I wanted to be like the guy from Green Day or The Killers. Um, I've never <laughs> asked that before. Sorry, I just I saw that as one of the questions. But yeah, tell us, um, do you wear eyeliner, Carl? No, I don't. No, I have before when I, I've done some like stage play acting and different <laughs> <laughs> film stuff, but no, not not normally. Yeah. There's some people who was oh the guy from Goodfellas Ray Liotta who died recently. I always thought he must wear a lot of eyeliner, but I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, tell us tell us what Skinwalker Ranch is just for for those people who've been living under a rock for the last few decades or whatever. Skinwalker Ranch is a really fascinating location in northeastern Utah in a place called the Uinta Basin, where for several decades there was actual. Uh, United States government funded research 
into UFOs and the paranormal. And a lot of that was done through different shell programs. Uh, Bob Bigelow was one of the main owners of the ranch during that time. And basically the reports that come out of there are everything from, like we talked about from portals opening and seeing things coming in and out of them to UFOs, to lights in the sky, to uh, orbs and stuff. But the, uh, the main theme that seems to come through most is a lot of paranormal Native American themed encounters that have to do with like wolves, werewolves, shape-shifting creatures and animals, and then like sort of Native American oral tradition stuff. Like, uh, so it almost feels like there's like a weird time travel glitch there where the past and the future kind of bleed together into the now. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. Very strange. I like that. I, I'm, I'm not personally, I'm not one for sort of, and I suppose everyone's this, a lot of people are this way. I, I don't like the paranormal when it's just like, oh, well, it's a ghost and that's that. But I quite like when it could be explained by science or, you know, Interstellar is my favorite movie ever. So when it can be like, oh, well, what's really happening is, and whether that's still true or not, who, you know, I don't, I'm not here to judge, so to speak. But I do like that stuff of like, oh, it's all melded uh, together. I mean, how do you do you believe in the Skinwalker Ranch stuff? Have you have you seen much of that stuff or much evidence your, yourself? I think it's a little bit difficult to separate the previous era and the research and their approach to it over uh, those decades versus kind of what's going on with the current uh, group right now. I work collaboratively with the current team and talk with uh, Brandon Fugel and stuff to do a lot of side projects around Skinwalker Ranch and in the basin uh, and with the team that way. And they're all friends of mine as well. Uh, the previous era was very much, uh, it's, it's, let me put it this way. It's the difference between doing a, having a collaborative team of people who want to be there and everybody kind of is on board and knows what the objective of the research is. And the previous era was more like doing a lot of stuff and the people that were there had no idea that they were kind of guinea pigs. And so they were sort of human biosensors. <laughs> Uh, walking around patrolling and doing experiments within the homesteads and stuff. And I have no idea. There's so much confusion from back then about what's true and what's not from who wrote the reports and why and whether they were just trying to make their boss happy or not. But at the end of the day, when you sift through all of that, there is something very strange going on. There is like a gravitational anomaly that's going on above the ranch that seems to be connected to something below and whether that's oh. an artificial or a planted thing or whether it has to do with the strange geology there uh that's a part of the big question that we're still trying to figure out what is it what does a skin walker look like or is it just that's the name of the place and there's all different kinds of spiritual things going on there yeah the skinwalker that comes from the oral tradition of what happened among the Native Americans there in the more recent history compared to like a lot of the ancient history where one of the tribes came in and basically enslaved the other tribe and uh, slaughtered a lot of them. In fact, they gathered them up and murdered a lot of them right there at the base of the Mesa where Skinwalker Ranch is. And so that's why there's a lot of that kind of bad energy there is that the, the land was sort of taken the people were enslaved. And so when they finally were set free, there was like a curse placed upon the land where 
the ghost of the skinwalker was like this shape-shifting entity that could change from like a deer to a wolf to an owl to uh, basically like a, almost a demonic type figure in order to scare anyone with bad intentions off of the property or to anybody who is living untrue. It sort of like uh, refines your life or is like, will scare you away type of like a guardian to the land. And so that's kind of where the name of the skinwalker comes from and why I think when a lot of people have sort of a strange occurrence there, it, it gets chalked up to that being some kind of like a, uh, a werewolf skinwalker type thing where a lot of times it might not be, but that's the folklore. Did you have um, a, a, a sort of ex a paranormal experience there? The first time that I went, I actually saw a weird shadow shape and had a lot of cognitive confusion, meaning like I was looking through my backpack, trying to find my night vision camera and trying to find my flashlights and stuff. And it was like I couldn't find my equipment. It was like I was confused and couldn't think straight. And right when that was going on, I saw like a weird looking. I thought it was like a cow moving along the fence. And then when I tried to walk up towards it, there was just like nothing there because it moved along the fence. And then it was like it crouched down really quick, like something squatted down right in front of me. And then uh, when I walked up there, there was nothing there. And then for like three days after that, I had really kind of intense sort of invasive feeling nightmares and dreams where it was like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Very, very restless, like... Uh, almost like somebody's kind of prodding you all night and you can't quite fall into deep sleep because something's sort of harassing you in the back of your mind. I felt like that for like three days and I couldn't quite put a finger on it. And then I, I felt fine. But other than that, I've just, you know, had a lot of uh, normal stuff going on in my life and things change. I went through a divorce after all that too and <laughs> sold my house and moved. So I don't know how much of that is all connected, but you hear a lot of stories like that where people go there and then their life kind of, uh, any kind of lies that they're living, man, you start facing the truth real quick. Wow, that's really interesting. Carl, we're running out of time. You've been a brilliant guest. Quickly tell us, I mean, they can go to your YouTube channel, but tell them where they want you to go. <laughs> Yeah, just go to YouTube and type in Carl the Crusher. I've been doing YouTube since 2009, but basically over the last year doing a lot of this, the petroglyph stuff. And really recently, the videos that I'm posting now is actually from when I went up with the Skinwalker Ranch team and Chris Bartell and James Keenan. And we did a lot of cave exploring and went into some sinkholes and cool stuff. So that's what I've been doing mostly there. And then my podcast channel is Carl Vibe. You can go look that one up too. So just type those in and you'll find me all over the place. Oh, thank you, Carl. Have a lovely evening. Thanks so much for joining us. It was brilliant. And uh, have, yeah, have a good night. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, right. Just at that moment, just at that moment, I lost Dr. Michael Sala, who was there until the last second. He might be refreshing his screen, but... Uh, he appears to have got, but he'll be back, I'm sure, in a minute. Um, just people ask me stuff on the side if you'd like to. Tim is saying, I love Andrew's angle to this whole crew, bringing us super interesting infotainment. Oh, thank you very much. Really nice guest, Dr. Cranky Flaps says. Tim says, has Andrew ever had a paranormal experience? 
I went looking for HBO. I did a, a video, which you can find on, on YouTube. Uh, Michael's rebooting. Um, um, so I did this thing. Uh, so I lived in Buenos Aires, as many of you know, in Argentina for six years. And I was making a short film for HBO looking for UFOs called ERCS, E-R-C-S. But I don't know what the English version would be because it was something like extra something 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 right you, you know i know my stuff here um but apparently they were the, from the fifth dimension and they live underground um and this was in a place called capilla del monte which in a normal spanish accent would be capilla del monte um and we went around looking i spent a week there went up into the mountains and i didn't see anything paranormal personally but maybe i'm closed off to it but we saw lights car headlights and all sorts of things um and that was a lot of fun. The people with me thought they saw stuff. So, and I'm not close-minded to it. Good luck to him. Right, let's see if Dr. Michael Sala is is if it's. Oh no, he's gone again. Oh no, I was just clicking him. It's gone. Rebecca. Well, let me look up what Irks are. Irks extraterrestres. Capisce del Monte. So, so yes. Yeah, so it's only in. Oh, you know what? I think I've I found my own. I might have found my own uh, article. <laughs> that's funny um oh dr michael Sala. let's see can you hear me good sir i don't think you can hear me i don't hear anything <clears throat> oh no okay i will take you off i've taken him off for now oh golly um it's it might be a it's a headphone thing and all the settings ash if you're speaking to him it could be that he needs to click on settings you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to message him because he'll get it. Can you click settings beneath? So you can all hear me doing this. So it just it's not a blank, just me typing. Can you click settings beneath the video? And there is audio. And then you can choose the right audio stream slash channel. Anyway, back to my UFO story. <laughs> and yes, Joni is right. Uh, this is a good time to sub up to Andrew. But don't leave this channel. Don't leave this show. This is where it's at. We've got quite a few people as well, 600 and whatever it is. Or, or what I mean is seven, several thousand million people. Uh, Carl says, thanks for having me, everyone. Carl was a great guest. So I went to Capilla del Monte, and it's a place that people believe um, was... Yeah, the, it was. I guess it's the Skinwalker Ranch of Argentina. I think you could say that. It was about a 15-hour or 10-hour, I can't remember now, uh, journey outside of Buenos Aires. It's outside of Córdoba, uh, and it's a really interesting place. And the mountains there, what happened was in the 80s or 90s, a big patch of the mountains suddenly turned black, right? It was green, and it suddenly turned black. And everyone was like, what the hell has happened? And meanwhile, this woman who I met called Luz Lopez, um, she was living up in Colombia. Now, Colombia seems near to Argentina to most of us because when, we, when you're not from there, you just see like, oh, South America, it's all quite near. But the difference between Colombia and parts of Argentina is the same as the difference between England and Pakistan in terms of um, geographical distance, which is quite surprising. Um, so sh this woman called Luz Lopez up in Colombia, she had a dream Oh, no, she did this thing. She wanted to turn her life around, right? So she stopped eating and drinking and stuff for like eight days. It was mad. And she had a dream, and it was a shape that she dreamt. And she kept dreaming this random shape. 
So she showed it to a friend of hers up in Colombia. Remember, this is as far as it's like England to Pakistan, ages away from Argentina. She showed the shape to a friend of hers, and a friend said, that is the shape of Capilla del Monte on a map. So she was just like, her mind blown, and she dropped everything in her life. They're talking about a 45-year-old, 50-year-old woman. Maybe she was 40-odd at the time. Dropped everything because all she knew was to be happy. Something was calling her to Capilla del Monte in Argentina. Travelled buses and buses and buses, took weeks, got down there, moved there. She met the owner of the Museum of Aliens. And my old Dr. Michael Sellers back. So I'm going to try him again and I'll have to continue my story about what happened with Luz Lopez and when she met the owner of the Museum of Aliens another time. Let's see if Michael, if it works. Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you. Yes. Oh. Uh, computer problem there. Oh, it happens. It happens so often, especially because it's a live show. It's so difficult. But you look, you look very snazzy. We've, we've matched our, the color of the names at the bottom of the screen to your shirt. Oh, well, there you go. Ah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about your your work and what, what you do for those who don't know. Well, I'm a full-time researcher of exopolitics that is looking at the political implications of extraterrestrial life. So I look at wow. different sources, documents, uh, historical records, and try and make sense of what it all means in, and try and get the big picture for people that are wanting to understand what's going on. That's funny because I'd seen the word exopolitics loads of times, including in looking and you know researching you, and I never just clicked to define because I wanted to ask you what it was, and I never knew it was that. That's really fact because we had some we had a space lawyer the other day as well, so we had the legal version of that as as well. Um, so t so tell me exopolitics. Give me a, a a little idea into well what what that means for us. What does that mean for us exopolitics? Where are we with our exopolitics? Well, you know, exopolitics is looking at what it is that's really going on in terms of uh, world events. So if you look at Ukraine, for example, right now, everyone looks at it in terms of, you know, Russia invading and that there was this unresolved uh, conflict from 2014 over whether or not it was a legitimate coup or whether or not it was a revolution that kind of like led to Ukraine um, kicking out a pro-Ukrainian or pro-Russian uh, president now is the conflict really all about geopolitics or is it about something discovered in the sun region of ukraine allegedly there's a space arc which is a giant spacecraft that's been buried there for thousands of years the ukrainians found it they were handing it off to the americans and the russians said no way and they invaded soon after this and it's quite interesting that the first region that was taken over by the russians is kherson which is where this space arc is buried so it means that when world events you know you have like uh geopolitics that people understand in terms of conventional uh political forces and actors and processes and then you have exotics which is looking at well are these kind of extraterrestrial artifacts or technologies driving the conflict wow that is really fascinating uh, there's a, it's a how do we how do you know that stuff and uh, how do you know it and now i know it but but not most people know it well it really does come from insiders and people who 
have some kind of direct hands-on knowledge of these programs, that these space arcs are, are very real. They're being discovered all over our solar system. And, and I have uh, several sources that have been talking about it. I, I probably have about uh, six sources that are telling me about these space arcs that are on the moon, on all over the Earth, that are actually in other parts of our solar system. One of, one of my sources is actually currently serving with the US Army. He's been taken on several covert missions where he's actually boarded these space arcs. So he's been to the, a space arc in the Atlantic Ocean and also on the moon. And he was told about the that was discovered in Ukraine just prior to this. What is a space arc? Is that like a flying saucer? Is that a more technical term? It's really kind of like an arc, as described in the Noah's Ark, in the legend, where it's very large, it's like a mothership, and it's designed to evacuate large numbers of people, animal and flora, during a time of catastrophe. And apparently these things are buried all over the earth, that they activate when we are at a point in history where we are either going to collapse uh, in terms of our ecosystem collapsing because of some kind of uh, political or war or uh, geographical catastrophe or whether we are going to kind of like evolve, move to a, a higher place in terms of our order. And so they're there. They're kind of like, like a safeguard and they were put there by the ancient races that kind of like have people pre-positioned for these end times and that's where we are wow is there any relation obviously we're thinking of noah's ark and the bible in your mind is there any relationship with sort of traditional religion or are we talking about two totally separate entities no this is uh totally what is described in the bible the bible describes noah's ark and and actually the bible is based on an earlier legend which is from the sumerian records which is the story of Utnapishtim, who who survived a great flood, and the great flood story is, is is universal, and so there are the the story. Of course, the great flood is that, that you have this wooden boat being built by by Noah or Utnapishtim, if you take the Sumerian version, and you had his family, and then you had the animals go on. But according to these sources, and and one of the sources that describes what really happened with these space arcs is uh, Dolores Cannon, who was the famed hypnotherapist, and she did past life regressions on people. And what she found was that there are these stories of during times of catastrophe that these giant space arcs would arrive, they would hover all over the planet, there'd be dozens of them, and people would be given the choice of going on the space arc or just surviving on the earth and those that went on the space arc they would go on there and and they would be gone for what would appear to them to be like a couple of days only a short period but when they came back it was like a thousand years had passed so these were like space-time devices wow okay so it's all linked up tell me a bit about the time travel experiments that began with nikola tesla in 1895 with his Tesla coils. 
Well, Tesla developed his first coil in 1891, and these generated very powerful electrostatic charges. And what he found, in addition to the effects of these electrostatic charges, you know, that you know could do things like power uh, light bulbs without any kind of uh, electrical connection. One of the things he found was that he could see the past and the future. And he actually said this, that he could see the past and the future. So it shows that when you generate very powerful electrostatic charges, you can actually warp space-time and you could see it. Or, you know, that was what he saw at that time. And uh, that that was the that's the kind of first recorded experiment that we know of showing how space-time can be warped by electrostatic charges, which is kind of not that surprising if you look at Einstein's uh, theories. I mean, if you look at the theory of general relativity, if you, if you, if you have a large enough uh, gravity field, it warps space-time. So similarly, electrostatic charges, they are related to gravity. It's shown that electrostatic charges can influence gravity. So the relationship between electricity, um, gravity, and time is, is something that is, is consistent with uh, Einstein's uh, theories. Why haven't we, I don't know enough about all this stuff, so why haven't we continued Tesla's work? Why aren't we traveling back and forward in time and all of that? Uh, we are. I mean, there's, there's a lot of covert projects that involve time travel. Uh, a really good example of this is that in, during the Second World War, well, just prior to the Second World War, this is before the famous Philadelphia experiment. Uh, the Philadelphia experiment was, was, was predicated on this idea of radar invisibility. That's the official story. But what it was doing was developing a way of being able to generate very powerful electrostatic charges around ships so that you could move them through space-time. And so this was something that, that was being developed from the Philadelphia, Philadelphia experiment and has evolved to the present time where there's many covert projects where they actually are able to send people and ships through these time portals to different eras and to observe and, and try and change time. Uh, They've the, the experimented in trying to change time. They haven't been too successful in that, but they've been very successful in looking at the past and the future. Wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I want, I'm desperate to travel into the future because I hate the idea of not knowing what happens in a few hundred years. I want to, is there any chance that the common person will be able to, that I'll be able to just get in something and move forward a thousand years in my lifetime? What's well, very interesting. Uh, I don't know how much of this classology is, is going to be released um, in, because so much has been covered up over more than a century of suppression of Tesla technologies. So there's going to be uh, a lot of advanced technologies again, and also information about extraterrestrial life. So it all depends on how much of that they release and how... Yeah, because one example of that technology being hidden um, is the flying saucer craft developed in Germany during the 1920s and 30s uh, and space-time devices using torsion field physics. So this is over my head. You're going to have to give it to me in lay people's terms. 
Sure. Well, torsion field physics is the idea that if you if you um, uh, have plasma and you place it in a kind of like a, a toroid or like a, a like a ring like uh, path, and you you have that circulate around really quickly at high pressure and high temperature, that plasma, especially if it's mercury-based, it, it generates a space effect. So that was one of the things that was experimented upon in Germany during this period in the 1920s, that there were figures within German society that believed that this kind of toroidal device could generate a space-time effect that could be used to power and propel spacecraft across enormous distances. So, so these experiments began in the Weimar Republic of Germany in the 1920s, and they progressed uh, through the Third Reich when they were able to create some of these operational craft and began to send them all over the place. Wow. That's interesting. And, and I suppose you'll tell me that, you know, we don't know whether they managed to actually perfect these crafts because it would be kept secret from us. Well, you know, this is one of the things that uh, we're hoping will be disclosed in the years ahead, just exactly how much of these technologies were, were used by different governments over the last hundred years. Uh, now, the thing is that at the moment, you know, what, what we have is that the US and its major allies are, are kind of all involved in this major war with Ukraine, but they're also getting ready to make this huge leap into space and some very advanced technologies and announce extraterrestrial life at some point. So this is, this is going to be very disturbing to the general public. And I think what is planned is that these technologies and these programs are going to be revealed in a way that doesn't destabilize society too much and and how much of the truth about things like well germany how much of the nazi german infrastructure was relocated to antarctica during the second world war to kind of create a fourth reich after the war that um, continues to exist and exert a unholy influence over world politics i mean those those are the things we we can speculate how much is going to be revealed. But I think if if you look at world politics today and if you look at Europe now, I mean, many people say that the uh, World Economic Forum is really a front for the Fourth Reich. Certainly, I think if you look at the people, uh, there's a very mysterious kind of covert German influence there. Bloody hell. Geheimness, as the Germans would say, secrets that they are keeping and but, but also the other side during world war ii you posit that the allied powers use time travel technology to get weapons from the future which is like it does feel like a, a rick and morty episode or something looking into the future i didn't hear oh yeah it's cutting out a little bit isn't it i'm just saying that part about the allied powers using time travel technology to get weapons from the future feels really science fictiony That is quite amazing. Um, but we know, as, a, as I mentioned, like the Philadelphia experiment did happen. I mean, that's... So that proves that in early 1943, uh, the US was experimenting with time travel. And at that point, they 
they had this. They start sending ships, or at least people from the future were able to start interacting with the US government in the 1940s and began giving them information on, on how to do this. And, and, and people will say, well, what's the, you know, what's the proof for this? Well, you, you look at how the Second World War ended. I mean, there, there were two nuclear devices dropped on Japan to end the war, but they were very different devices. And apparently one of the plutonium device was, was actually using plutonium from the future. And this was how that device was actually fueled and, and dropped because th there wasn't enough plutonium being produced at that time during the Second World War. Wow, that's fascinating. Just a, a brief interval just to say, Sean Atwood has just messaged in to say, about to drive home, just finished podcasting in Cornwall. He's, he's doing filming, so if anyone's wondering where the host of this channel, Sean Atwood is, isn't the, the eponymous namesake man, that's what he's been up to. Um, and he's checking in on us, isn't he? Making sure we're not doing anything we shouldn't be doing. But that's what Sean's up to, everyone. And I'm in his place right now. Tell me a little bit about Chronovisor technology in the 1950s to do with music. Is that right? Yeah, well, this is another aspect of uh, time travel. Uh, that in the 1950s, there was a Italian priest researcher who found that when you apply electro magnetic frequencies to sound, especially Benedictine chanting, that you could actually generate a, a kind of space-time effect, kind of very similar to what Tesla found out accidentally when he was working with Tesla coils in uh, 1895. So this Benedictine monk, uh, like over 50 years later, discovered similarly that when you play with uh, audio frequencies of, of chants, that you could actually use using electromagnetic uh, waves generate a space-time effect and he began to see the past even the remote past and so they used this to be able to look into the past and and so there was a book written about it it's called father Onetti's chronovisor and uh, the, the name of the italian researcher is pellegrino Onetti, and uh, he was someone that created this chronovisor that when handed off to the CIA in, in the 1960s, and then the US began to develop these chronovisors uh, to kind of use them for intelligence gathering. Because that's what both the CIA and the Vatican were very interested in, like how well could these devices be adapted and used for gathering intelligence on future events as well as past events. I think we've we've found out some fascinating things about history and and with Ray J in, in the, on the side's question here, which is, you know, how far ahead is the government technology today uh, that we don't know about? I, I also want to tie in for you a question about Elon Musk because we're going to today. So, so how far ahead are we uh, that, that you know of and what's Elon Musk up to? Well, we're definitely uh, 40 years or more ahead in terms of you know, what, what is publicly available in technology. Uh, in the classified world, it's at least 40 years ahead. Uh, so that means that stuff that was built in the 1980s is slowly being leaked out now. So, and, and, that's, and that's kind of very interesting when we look at some of these advanced 
anti-gravity spacecraft that were built in the 80s. Because the, the 1980s was a kind of watershed period where the US and other, other countries were able to reverse engineer some of these uh, anti-gravity craft that they had been studying uh, for, for several decades that had been taken from various uh, crash retrieval operations around the world. So the 80s, uh, they, they had a number of these craft that were uh, built and operationalized. And so that, that says that right now, these craft are due, they're kind of like 40 to 50 years ahead. And, and so that means that they can be released now without any kind of great problem. Uh, so I think this is where people like Elon Musk come in. Elon Musk, of course, is a very, uh, very bold entrepreneur. And, and what he wants to do is, is take us away from the fossil fuel industry into a, a fully electric uh, age. And the only way to do that is to come up with some way of generating enormous amounts of energy. And so this is where the the the, the kind of anti-gravity craft come in. Because if you're able to generate uh, enormous energy using, uh, say, uh, some kind of uh, nuclear fusion device, um, and some of these nuclear fusion devices, I mean, they, they can generate like gigawatts of energy. Uh, enough to power uh, a very large aircraft carrier, for example. So these these uh, nuclear fusion reactors, you know, they were being built in the 1970s and 80s and being put into some of these secret spacecraft that had been reverse engineered, and they were being sent out into space. So that stuff is now being uh, slowly released. It's, it's already begun. You, you have a, a, a U.S. Navy scientist uh, Dr. Salvador Payas, who's released five patent applications. And one of those five patent applications, uh, you can actually find this at the U.S. Patent and Trademarks Office, is actually the, the full schemata for a nuclear fusion reactor. And I think this is, this is uh, where Musk comes in. Oh, fascinating. All of that. Really interesting. And, and you just want to sort of peek behind the curtain, don't you, to find out what's there now and getting ahead of you know I, i'm desperate to do that but we can't unfortunately I, I believe we're running um low on time but tell us and tell the good people where you'd like them to to go and check out your stuff buy your stuff where would you want them to see uh best place to go is just uh, my website it's uh exopolitics.org that's e-x-o politics.org uh, that's where they, you can find out all about my books webinars and articles and interviews uh, definitely it's a good time to start exploring and, and getting up to speed with this information. So thanks, Andrew, for having me on the show. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's been wonderful and have a lovely evening.